HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart Street. Do you need a conference room for your next meeting? Learn more by visiting 100bogart.com. This week on a special Valentine's Day edition of Meet and 3, we put a twist on the lovey-dovey holiday. The mission statement is save the world through silliness and chocolate, and in parentheses, launch a chocolate bar into outer space. But I'm having um, some conflict on the board members with the parentheses. That's okay. He cited that in his area there used to be 30 dairy farms and now there are three. You know, dessert was political, and what you had on the dessert table said more about you than other markers of success. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news and storytelling roundup wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Lisa Held coming to you live from Full Service Radio at the Line Hotel in Washington, D.C., and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. Today we're going to be talking about food safety on farms. So over the past few years, the Food Safety Modernization Act, or FSMA, because in policy we love acronyms, um, has been changing the food safety practices that farms are required to follow. And that has been a challenge, especially for a lot of small farms. So joining me today is Kara Fravor, the National Young Farmers Coalition's Business Services Director. She is one of the creators of a new guidebook and online resource library called a Small Farmer's Practical Guide to Food Safety, which is intended to help farmers manage some of these new regulations. Kara, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So I want to talk um, about what you're seeing in terms of food safety on farms and especially about the new guide. Um, first, I want to just um, provide a little bit of background. So. Um, The FSMA was signed into law by President Obama in 2011, Um, and then there's this process called rulemaking where the legislation is then turned into actual regulations, Um, 
And one of the rules that came out of it is this new produce safety rule that affects produce growers. Um, and I think what, one of the important things is the date that farmers had to be in compliance with that rule was based on the size of farms. So um, the deadline for farms with revenue over 500000 was January 2018, and then farms between 250000 and 500000 had until January 2019. And then farms with revenue less than 250000 had to be in compliance by just last month, January 2020, um, with the exception of farms under 25000 who are exempt. Um, so I think that's good context because it's been this kind of like several year process of growers figuring out what they might need to change to meet the new guidelines and then implementing those changes. So I think my first question is just sort of like over the past few years as this is happening, um, what was the Young Farmers Coalition hearing from growers in terms of challenges they might have been facing in terms of implementing the rule? Yeah, so um, thanks for that useful, great intro. And the one thing that I would add to that is mm -hmm. there's an, an extra exemption. So, right, oh. you mentioned that these are based on size. Right. Like that the, the um, compliance dates are based on size. But there's a, a special sort of exemption called a qualified exemption, okay. which is for farms that are selling less than half a million dollars worth of food. And most of their food is sold either direct to consumer or um, to a qualified end user that's within 275 miles of their farm, same state or Indian reservation. Okay. Um, and so that kind of covers a lot of the farmers that we see in our network at the National Young Farmers Coalition, right? A lot of them are doing direct marketing. So they're selling through CSA or farmers market. Right. And so they fall under the special qualified exemption. Um, when you said, sorry, can, we I, have, can I just yeah. ask a clarifying question? So you said they have to be selling most of their food um, to direct markets. Is it like a specified amount? Like how do they define most? It's more than 50% oh. by value. Got it. Okay. And, and when we say that qualified exemption, and this stop me at any point in this conversation if it gets so wonky that you're like, listeners will not <laughs> want to know this intricate detail of the Produce Safety Act. No, I, um, love, I love getting into the, the weeds, so go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Um, is, that, um, is that within that qualified exemption, it's, um, it's, a, it's the amount of food that is sold. Mm. So when you mentioned that the $25,000 exemption, so farms that are selling less than $25,000, that's $25,000 worth of produce. Right. And the $500,000 is $500,000 worth of food. So if you had a large, for instance, like a, a dairy, a large dairy farm and you had, or it wouldn't even have to be super large, but you know, a dairy farm selling more than half, half a million dollars worth of milk, um, that then if you sold some vegetables, those vegetables would still, uh, could, could still be covered in full, you could still need to be in full compliance uh, under okay. the pretty safety rule. And so that's like a little like kind of quirky thing. We see like hay farms or farms that are, you know, mostly doing, um, you know, doing like kind of one larger commodity, but right. then they have a little entity that's just produce. And sometimes that um, they don't fall under that qualified exemption because of the other commodities that they're selling. 
Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, this alone, it seems like it might be a challenge for firms just to figure out whether or not they have to, like, yes. even be, if they qualify for the regulation, right, to begin with. Yes. It's, it's, um, it is like we spend a ch- an entire chapter in our guidebook kind of talking about exemptions because there's other, you know, quirks and weird things within the exemptions that are um, important, not as important for our farmers to understand as this qualified exemption, but, you know, important for other types of farms that are like doing a lot of processing or things like that. Um, And we can do, I mean, we could probably do a two hour conversation on exemptions alone, um, (laughs) (laughs) which, you know, that might be a little um, not too everyone, yeah. Not everyone's cup of tea, but um, but yeah. So it is. It is. It's important to understand where. I think for farmers, it's important to understand where you fall, fall in the rule. So certainly, you know, for people who need to be in full compliance, who are needed to be in full compliance by, you know, last year, like most of them, I think, kind of have a hold on it. Certainly, there are probably outliers. Mm. One of the things is that this is the first time that this industry has been regulated like this. Wow. So we've seen, we've seen, you know, for since the late '90s, we've seen gaps or good agricultural practices, um, which are buyer-required audits. So you know, you sell to Wegmans mm-hmm. or you sell to somebody like that, and that that. Um, buyer will say, hey, we need you to do this food safety audit and you have to pay for it as a farmer. Um, And it's like there's lots of different options and your buyer will tell you which one. And so for larger scale farms that have been selling wholesale for many years, they may have become quite familiar with some of the basic food safety rules. They might have standards that are even higher than the produce safety rule under FSMA, um, which is we say FISMA as the acronym. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, for, for those kinds of growers, this is, this is maybe old hat. Right. Um, is there a lot but, of overlap between um, GAP standards and the produce safety rule? Yeah, there is a lot, right? I often joke. So the GAP standards kind of fall under USDA and mm-hmm. FISMA falls under FDA and I s- sort of joke that, like, it doesn't matter which agency is watching you wash your hands. You still have to wash your hands kind of the same way. Right. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes people say, oh, food safety, that's just common sense. I would argue that um, there's actually a lot of things about it that aren't common sense. But, um, but I think that a lot of the basics are really the same, right? You don't poop in the fields. You wash your hands a lot. Yeah. You try to things super clean. You don't harvest anything that has clearly had an animal activity. So um, those are some of the like key takeaways. And that's going to be the same no matter who's looking at your farm. Um, and we really see that even our even the farmers that we train that are qualified exempt or who are fully exempt, like they're very interested in these standards and making sure that um, that their farms are growing the safest, cleanest, most high quality produce that they can grow. Mm-hmm. So I don't think, um, I don't think that it's had, I think there was a lot of maybe fear in the beginning um, and a lot of anger as an industry that had never really felt federal regulation in mm. quite this before. Um, 
was feeling regulated for the first time. Right. But I don't think that we, I think we're seeing a lot of people in our trainings and in the conversations that we're having who are open to this and, and quite excited to make sure that they're growing food as, as, as well as they can. Right. Absolutely. Um, Have you, I mean, are you hearing that any of the changes that are required are, um, you know, really costly to farmers or labor intensive, like things that would really affect their business potentially? Um, yes and no. So again, a lot of the folks that we train fall in that qualified exempt category, right? So that those requirements are going to be quite minimal. Mm-hmm. Um, it just is better signage and better labeling and then keeping track of your financial records in order to prove that you're qualified exempt. Mm. Um, and then for farms that tend to be a little bit larger, it's there are certainly things about this rule that are complicated and, and even that are still a little unclear, right? We, we've only right. seen this in actual practice for a couple of years. And there are still parts of the rule that are kind of being reconsidered and just aren't totally ironed out. I think it takes a while for any law to, to really, you know, to smooth out mm-hmm. and for all of the, the kind of the regulatory parts to fall into place. Who who's managing it? What does it look like? How do we? How are we sure that it's the same from state to state? All of that. Um, and so there are places like that where it is really confusing to farmers because it's still really confusing. Right. Um, and and you know farmers will say like, well, what am I supposed to do about water? And you say, well, you know, the original rule said this, but this part's still kind of under consideration and. So don't put your head in the sand, but don't spend a whole lot of money on it right now. Um, and those are kinds of some of the places where we see see things that feel the trickiest. So there's there's there can be, depending on your kind of operation and the kind of irrigation you use, there can be a lot of water testing. Mm. Um, and that can add up and be quite costly. But again, I think we, we may see that change in the coming years. Um there's a lot there there's a there's an increased amount of record keeping. Yeah. So it seems any like farm that. Yeah. For a farm that needs to be in full compliance, um and has never had to pass any kind of other food safety audit, I think it can be a little bit of a shock to think like every time I clean something, I need to be <laughs> essentially keeping yeah. a record of it. Yeah. Um, and that is not record keeping on a very basic level isn't particularly expensive, but it's, um, it can be onerous for a small operation to imagine like, how do we like make sure that this isn't taking too much time and that our staff is doing it correctly and just that it fits into the flow of an operation. And with produce farming, you know, you make money by doing things efficiently you can only really make money, I think, by doing things kind of efficiently mm-hmm. and really streamlining tasks and like saving seconds or minutes in, in, on any given task. And then those add up and that can be 
um, beneficial. And so adding something that can take so much time as constant record keeping can be a little, um, can just feel really tedious and sometimes feel a little pointless. Like as long as we're cleaning it, why do we have to keep a record of it all the time? (laughs) I think that's a reasonable question that farmers ask. Um, but you really have, if you need to pass an inspection, you kind of have to have a lot, a number of records. And again, we talk about all the records through the course of, of a training, but there's only really like seven key records that one needs to keep. Hmm. Um, and a lot of this information, so the standardized curriculum that's currently being delivered, we're, we're hoping to see alternative curricula and um, other adaptations in the coming years, but right now a lot of the current curriculum and current information comes out of an organization called the Produce Safety Alliance. Okay. Um, and they have a really great sort of basic tip sheet of the like seven records you need to have, mm. um, and that can be it can be sort of soothing to give that out to a room full of farmers and be like, look. We're going to talk about this for eight hours, but it's really these, like, seven things. Right. Um, A a list is always kind of soothing, grounding, right? It's just... (laughs) Right. And you see the template, and you're like, I could fill out half of this right now. Like, my name and address. Like, that can be (laughs) that part. Um, So I think those are areas where um, we see some sort of... We see farmers feel a little bit intimidated both around water and around record keeping. Mm. Um, there is also, um, there's also just kind of a lot of cleaning and sanitizing involved. And mm. that's a great practice for people to be using. Um, but a lot of, a lot of small farmers around the country are using equipment that might not have been, might not be brand new. Mm-hmm. Even some brand new equipment is not necessarily designed to be super easy to clean and sanitize. Um, people might be using equipment that wasn't met, meant for its purpose. And those are, like, I think that that is one of the coolest, sexiest, most amazing things about small farmers around the country is their ability to be like, you know, what if we right. did this amazing thing and use this crazy equipment to make our farm work better. But then Um, it might be hard for like the regulators to understand or like apply the rules because (laughs) they don't even understand like what the farmer's using it for. Yeah. Yeah. Or it might be hard for the farmer to clean and sanitize that equipment. Mm. Um, And that can be dangerous. Yeah. Um, Okay. We're going to take a quick break. Um, When we come back um, more with Kara Fravor, we're going to talk more about the guide to food safety. This episode was brought to you by 100 Bogart, a new building in Bushwick, Brooklyn, with meeting and event spaces available for on-demand booking. Looking for the next perfect outdoor location for your next gathering? Host your next event at 100 Bogart's impressive rooftop, just steps away from the Morgan L stop. It's one of the largest and tallest roof spaces in Bushwick, boasting 360-degree views of Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Queens. 100 Bogart's Rooftop is available for your next networking event, fundraiser, special performance, or photo shoot. There's approximately 5,000 square feet, 
ample space for up to 100 guests. For more information on hosting an event at 100 Bogart's rooftop, email info at 100bogart.com or call 718-362-3539. All right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report. I'm here with Kara Fravor from the National Young Farmers Coalition. Um, we've been talking about food safety on farms, and um, we were kind of talking about uh, all kinds of broad strokes, um, what farmers are dealing with, what they have to do with this, these new regulations. Let's talk more specifically about the guide itself. So it's called A Small Farmer's Practical Guide to Food Safety. Um, and Kara, it lives online, correct? It does, yep. We have a PDF version on our website. Um, and then we also have the ability for people to purchase it if they love to be able to hold something in their hands. Okay. Um, so and then free to download, copy. but then you can purchase it if you want a physical copy. Yep, exactly. Okay. And then we have, um, we have a bunch of food safety events this spring. And so we have some copies that uh, are printed that we will be passing out through those food safety events oh, okay. to farmers. So are those going to be sort of in-person trainings related to topics within the guide? Yep. We will do, um, this is all funded through one of USDA's NIFA grants, the FSOP grant. Um, and so that, the guide, this guidebook is not. This guidebook was funded through funding through FDA um, with a project called the Local Food Safety Collaborative. Okay. Um, and they printed a bunch of books, and then we will be passing those out through um, – event at these events that were this sort of these sort of FSOP funded events that we're doing in Indiana, Illinois, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Texas, and New York. Um, we're sort of doing a bunch of tours. Some of them are PSA training, so a full day food safety training. Some of them are just individual farm walkthroughs or group farm walkthroughs where we talk about um, practices on farm and how a specific farm might improve their practices, what's going well, what's, what could be improved. Um, and then we'll have a couple sort of deeper dive workshops where we explore, say, wash, washing and packing station design and how to make it um, more food safe and more efficient. And maybe we'll talk about worker training and how um, farmers need to improve worker training in order to make sure that all employees and volunteers have a good understanding about basic principles of food safety and how they can make food safer. So we have a bunch of deeper dive workshops that we'll be doing as part of these tours too. Right. Yeah. And those, I mean, so you've got these sort of deeper dive workshops and then, I mean, the guidebook itself is 71 pages. It's really comprehensive. Um, you know, you're sort of like, Oh, food safety is simple, but there's a lot in there. It's really deep. Um, can you, um, I guess sort of sum up just the main components, like what are, if someone asks you, like, what are the, the biggest takeaways? Um, can you sort of give us a elevator pitch for what exactly is in it? <laughs> yeah, I was just talking to a friend about going to, I was like, I'm going to be on this podcast. And I was like, it's about produce safety. And she is not a produce safety nerd. And she was like, you mean like, don't poop in the fields? And I was like, exactly. That is, that is like number one key takeaway. Um, so 
that part's common sense. Yeah, I mean, the guidebook has has various chapters that kind of follow along with um, with the Produce Safety Alliance training. So we cover worker health and hygiene, um, soil amendments, adjacent land and sort of animal intrusion, production water, post-harvest water, and then post-harvest handling. And mm-hmm. we talk also about food safety plans, and there's a lot, lot of other stuff in here, but it's kind of divided into those key areas. And um, and we'd say, like, worker health and hygiene is mostly about making sure your workers know how to handle food safely, making sure they don't come to work sick. Um, the produce safety rule is really about foodborne illness sickness. So it's not about long-term exposure to chemicals necessarily. It's not, um, it's, it's really about like gut sickness. Mm. Uh, so, which is not necessarily the only things that farmers might be concerned about. They might be concerned about making sure their food is safe and healthy in a whole range of ways. But this rule is really about making sure that you're not making anyone who eats your food vomit right. or other things like that. So there's lots of stuff about like not coming to work sick, making sure you wash your hands, having proper toileting facilities, that, that kind of information, which feels pretty, pretty straightforward. Um, And like the kind of base thing that you would definitely want all farms to be doing. Um, We talk about soil amendments because those can be risky, especially if you're using any kind of soil amendments that come from animals, so especially raw manure, mm-hmm. um, and how to handle that properly, um, making sure that animals coming into your farm, like wild animals or domestic animals that you might have on farm are not posing a risk. We talk about that for a bit. And then um, agricultural water. So irrigation water has been linked to a number of historic foodborne illness outbreaks. Mm. Um, ones that I'm sure all your listeners like the romaine in like Arizona right yeah things you're talking about at your Thanksgiving table like romaine outbreaks yeah um that right and that was water not from the farm like not from the produce farm from a neighboring farm right right from animal waste but so that's that's so complicated because it's like right you have to test water that is maybe not even your like where it's coming from right Right. Yeah. Right. And that is, I mean, I I have the most experience farming in the Northeast, but certainly all around the country, there are methods of using, of getting irrigation water um, from surface, from different kinds of Mm. surface water. Right. And in that case, I mean, the romaine outbreak uh, example is actually very complicated and it's not super easily explainable. Okay. uh, But, um, but there are, you know, there there were there were signs in that case that there were that there were animals upstream that had the same kind of E. coli that was found in the outbreak. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, one of the the one of the key takeaways also is that it, especially if you're using surface water, so if you're using any kind of irrigation water, should be tested. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's not totally true. Uh, if you're using municipal water. You can just get proof that it has been tested. You don't have to test it yourself. Um, so your town or municipality right. has that has that kind of information online. But if you're using well water, you need to test that. And if you're using surface water, you need to test that. And and much more frequently because it can be because it just changes constantly. You know, mm-hmm. if you have a you have a pond and then you know a bunch of geese land. 
in your in your area for a couple of days, like you may see a spike in, um, say, salmonella in that pond in that span of time. So in, in this rule, you're really just testing for um, E. coli in your in the surface water, um, but that can be an indicator that there are that there are problems. Um, so yeah, definitely testing your water is part of this rule. Again, it's a part that is back under consideration. So the exact rule around how you need to test, how often you need to test, um, that's it's not really set in stone right now, but I think it's an important step for farmers to start to understand the quality of the water that they're using because mm -hmm. it can be so risky. And especially on diversified vegetable farms, especially um, in certain parts of the country, like we just, we're using a lot of irrigation water. It's something where, you know, that might, you might be, you might be irrigating twice a week on some, on some kinds of farms in some climates. And so <clears throat> having a really clear picture of the risk involved in that water can be a, an important step to making sure that you're growing safe produce. Right. Absolutely. Let's go back for a second to, to, um, animals on farms. So this is one of the things that, um, I, I don't know, it just made me think a lot about these diversified um, farms that are growing vegetables, so they might be subject to the produce safety rule. Um, but I mean, a lot of regenerative diversified systems involve animals and vegetables, right? And and I guess I'm just curious to hear from you, like if the way this rule is written, will that affect the way that farmers approach diversified systems at all? Or is it pretty much, or do you feel like it's written in a way that most of the systems are already achieving these, you know, the, the requirements that they need to prove? That is a wonderful, that's a wonderful question, right? So this rule covers, the produce safety rule covers um, both food that is grown in the United States and food that is imported, or not the produce safety rule, but FSMA covers food that is imported into the United States and food that is created outside of the United States. Okay. Um, that's like maybe not important exactly for the question that you're asking, but, but the produce safety rule covers all kinds of farms in the United States. And we have a lot of, we have a lot of plain growers who are using animals like yeah. in the field for production, um, not just plain growers. There are lots of farmers in our network using draft animals as well. Um, you know, there's a lot of merit to having a varied diversified farm mm -hmm. um, economically, environmentally, emotionally, like there are tons of reasons that I think that's great. And I could, you know, geek out about Rudolf Steiner for a little bit, but right. <laughs> well, um, I, was, I was thinking, um, sorry, not to go off track, but yeah. I was thinking about this um, one specific example, which was, um, so I don't know if you've seen The Biggest Little Farm, this movie about um, agriculture, the, the creator, uh, John Chester, was a guest on The Farm Report uh, last year, maybe in the fall. Um, I don't have the episode number off, off the top of my head, but there was a scene where they had this pest problem on their, in their or fruit orchard, and it was snails, and they couldn't get rid of the snails, and so then they came up with this um, solution, which was bringing in all these 
um, I think they were ducks. They might have been ducks. geese. Yep. Yeah, ducks, they right? Ducks. And the ducks were like just in the orchard eating the snails. And I was like, oh, that's brilliant. And, like I thought of that example when I was thinking about animals in, in with produce. Like would that be okay it, under these regulations? Because then the animals are in the field when maybe there's ripe fruit on the trees, right? Right. So, um, uh, so we did a case study a couple of months ago with um, a farmer that I love in, in Colorado named Harrison Top mm. um, about uh, essentially, I, th- the, I think one would call that Silvio pasture, okay. where you're having, you're running animals through an orchard. Um, and this can be great, right? Because it could, in, the, in Harrison's case, he's running sheep through mm. um, peach, cherry, mm, and two other fruits that I'm not going to know off the top of my head, orchards, um, and they, they can keep down weeds. They can add fertility. Mm-hmm. It can be a great way to manage your sheep. It can be really effective um, and regenerative and a good use of land. There's like a lot of perks to that. Yeah. Um, and in Harrison's case, he does go through a, a, a GAPS audit, um, a harmonized GAPS audit in that case. And there's just a rule about at what point do those animals need to leave the orchard in order for it to be safe. Okay. Um, like before and, harvest, like something yeah. like that. Okay. Yeah. And again, it's like a little less risky because it's these trees, right? I'm not sure like right. with the duck example, you know, with sheep, we're not worried that the sheep are somehow getting into the trees. And, mm-hmm. but um, I mean, there's other complications, but um, you know, I'm not sure how much ducks fly up into trees. Right. I don't know. But in any case, <laughs> there is a pretty clear, there's a pretty clear rule about raw manure application and how far from the time that raw manure is applied to harvest is allowed and how, you know, when you see fruit, you, there's, there's, it's, it's fairly clear under both um, the National Organic Program and under FISMA's produce safety rule, how that should work. Okay. So in the biggest little farm example, I don't really know. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't, I, I didn't expect you to be able to. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you're the, the FISMA authority. In my living room, I did see that they had, a, you know, so it's like kind of about um, managing the risk involved yeah. in making sure that you're not introducing some pathogen to, um, to kind of, you know, managing a diversified, um, environmentally conscious farm. Right. It's a a balance, right, between the two. Because, like, you want a farmer to be able to make decisions that are about, you know, the ecology of the operation and and that are smart and creative and not be held back by regulations, but also, like, people can't get sick. So it's sort of like figuring out how to balance those two things. Right. And there's a really interesting conversation happening in the, like, geeky world of produce safety around some of these topics. So I think when we first started to see an increase in conversations around outbreaks, and specifically I'm thinking of like 2000, maybe the 2006 or 2008 spinach outbreak. Mm. Um, This is like, that was about the time when I started farming and it was very, there was like an outbreak that, that like, impacted so clearly impacted how much spinach everyone was able to sell uh, even people who weren't um you know associated with the outbreak in any possible way right um, 
And I think we saw such a dramatic conservation. We saw such a dramatic um, shift in the way that farms were managed. So people took out riparian buffers and people took out um, trees and just tried to like make a very sterile space in mm. response to some of those early outbreaks. And I think found that um, that that wasn't that didn't actually improve the food safety dramatically, and it had a lot of environmental, other environmental impacts. Right. And so, very clear, there's very clear language within the produce safety rule about how that's not what they want you to be doing. Well, that's good. Right? They don't want they don't want turtles like nesting in your produce fields, but they also don't want you to rip out all your turtle habitat. Mm. Um, I mean. The law is not that specific. That's just like a terrorist <laughs> general intention. But um, I think that there is pretty clear language in, in the rule about that. How that gets interpreted, both by farmers who are trying really hard to just comply with the rule and meet the regulation, and how it gets interpreted by the actual inspectors on the ground can sometimes feel a little bit trickier. Yeah. Um. How often are inspections um, happening? It really varies from state to state. Um, okay. What part of the thing, and I'm not an expert on, <coughs> excuse me, on the inspections or the um, the sort of rollout of the regulation necessarily, right. but part of what has been a little bit tricky is because these, because there are farms that have just never really been regulated before. Um, there, when, when we started to see this rule, the sort of implementation of this, the conversation around the implementation of this rule, states didn't know how many farms they were ever going to have to inspect. Yeah. They like, no, there's, you know, you can just have a farm and have a Facebook page and you're not like registered with someone <laughs> necessarily. Um, and so there were states that were like, we need to hire inspectors and educators but we have no idea how big our industry actually is. We don't know how many farms we're going to need to inspect. Um, and so there are some states that just feel sort of, I think, a little pressed to meet the needs of, <coughs> excuse me, of the number of farmers in their state. Like we're not going to, you know, we're going right. to have to do inspections every three years because we don't have enough inspectors, for instance. Um, and then there are some states who, just were much early adapters who have been way more gung-ho about it and are hoping to do inspections every year. You know, it just, it kind of varies depending on the state. Okay. Um, and those inspections usually, the inspections usually happen by a department of ag, hopefully, like a state department of ag. That's kind of a good case scenario. Or sometimes that's called like a plant department in some states. Sometimes it's the state department of health. Um, there are a couple of places, there are a couple of states where it is the FDA that the federal FDA that will be doing that inspection. Okay. Oh, so that's interesting. It's a federal program, but a lot of times the states are the ones carrying out the inspections. And Yeah. And yeah. that's maybe better. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of variation like, in states and. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and hopefully, I mean, it's not always true, but hopefully farmers have a decent um, relationship with 
their departments of agriculture, and hopefully the departments of agriculture understand how farming happens in their state. And so, um, you know, that, that that's an existing, hopefully a good existing relationship that they can build upon. Um, that's what we, that's what we like to see. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, okay, we need to wrap up. Um, Kara, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks. Um, so just before we go, um, where can listeners get the Small Farmers Practical Guide to Food Safety? Yep. So you can download it. Um, you download a PDF at youngfarmers.org. Um, or you can go to our store on youngfarmers.org and it says shop at the top of our website and you can purchase it as a, um, as a book that gets mailed to you in the mail. It is 137 pages long, but I hope that it is attractively um, designed and fun to read. <laughs> Wait, it's a hundred. I said it was 70. Why did I say it was 71? I get, Oh, you know what? I think it's like two pages at a time on the PDF. <laughs> it's two pages at a time on the PDF. Okay. Sorry, it makes it sound more, more, um, digestible. Right. Um, and they can also farmers in Indiana, Illinois, Arkansas, Oklahoma, New York, and Texas, we are having these food safety tours. And so, um, sort of check our events page to see if there are events near you that could be helpful and that there would be guidebooks at those as well. Great. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening to the Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. I'll see you next week. The Farm Report is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.